So, 62 sermons. I think it's time for some trivia questions. <laughs> Answer out loud. I think they're easy. Did the Corinthian church have it all together? No. Did they have divisions in their church? Did they struggle with idolatrous practices and thoughts? Yes. Did they all agree on issues of Christian liberty? No. Did God give up on them? And perhaps that's the most remarkable thing as we come to the end of this letter. God's faithfulness. His patience. His love for them. We all know how we would respond to this church if we were on the counseling end of, man, they're a mess. They're, they're never going to get it. How long have they been at this? They're just completely dysfunctional. They just can't get out of their own way. I wish the best for them, but I'm not going to waste my time with them anymore. Thankfully, God is not like us for their sake and for our sake, because how many times should God have given up on us? And yet there remains a faithful continued leading us and teaching us through his word. And what is he leading us to? What is he teaching us? It's not just right behavior. It's not just right theology. But it's having a right heart that produces right behavior, right beliefs. A heart that does all things in love for the king. You remember last week we touched on verse number 22. The warning that Paul gives at the very end to the Corinthians, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be devoted to destruction. So the love of our hearts matters even as we're doing church stuff. 1 Samuel 16, verse number 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, can you finish that? On the heart. It can all look good on the outward. It could even look spiritual. But if there's no love for the Lord, it means nothing. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Without love, it's, it's worthless. Last week I said that Paul gives us some markers to evaluate whether we have a love for the Lord or not. And these markers have the Corinthians looking outside of themselves. All, all of their issues were stemming from a focus on self. We could pinpoint their pride, their selfishness as the reason for all of their problems. And in their mind, the church was centered on themselves when it should have been centered on Jesus, the King. So what we started into last week, and we'll finish here this morning, we said a love for the kingdom indicates a love for the king. And we asked the question, what does love for the kingdom look like? First of all, we spent our time last week looking at verses 1 through 4. 
It looks like giving financially. We are to have a kingdom focus in our giving. It's not about building a a little church empire here. It's recognizing that we are part of something much larger and God's kingdom is bigger than any one church. And so as individuals, we give for the good of the kingdom. As a church, we give for the good of the kingdom. But, and I don't have a whole lot of time to spend recapping that. If you want, you can go online and listen to that. But financial giving is isn't the only way that we demonstrate a love for the Lord and His kingdom. So our first point this morning, our second point in looking at this, we should also be sending workers, sending laborers. This is verses, we're going to look at verses 4 through 11 here. And I won't take the time to read down through this whole passage uh, as John already read it, but we'll, look at, we'll read some as we go through. Verses 3 and 4. Notice Paul here, he, uh, he says, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so the Corinthians, we talked briefly, are to select people and to send them to Jerusalem with the collection that they were, they were, uh, they were taking up. Now, Paul in verses 5 to 9 I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me And there are many adversaries. So Paul's passing through Macedonia. He says, look, I may or may not spend time with you. If the Lord permits, I hope to. And right up front, though, you you get the sense that, okay, this is not just Paul deciding where he wants to go, when he wants to go, but there's an understanding that the Lord is the one that is sending out the workers. He's the one that's ultimately sending Paul. He's sending ambassadors out into this world to represent his kingdom, to preach his gospel. The Lord has already sent Paul to Ephesus. Now he says, look, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And did you catch verse number 9? Why? For a wide door of ministry, effective work, effective ministry has opened. This is kingdom ministry. But you notice how he ends verse 9. There are many adversaries. So you have a clash of two competing kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world under the control of Satan and the kingdom of King Jesus. There's a clash that's happening. And Paul says there's people that are they're adversaries that are working against this. And so you can picture two kingdoms in spiritual conflict clashing. And then we're reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Remember what he says here? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, why did cities back then have gates? Well, they had it to keep the enemy out. They had it for protection. Looking at this verse, which kingdom then is on the offensive? Which kingdom is on the attack? 
It's the gates of hell that are not going to prevail. And so it's the kingdom of Jesus that is actually on the attack. It's the kingdom of light and the gates of hell will not thwart King Jesus as he constantly is sending troops into battle to engage the enemy with the power of the gospel. And so what is the role of this little Corinthian church in all of this? Verse number six. So that you may help me on my journey, Paul says, wherever I go. They were to be sending Paul out even as he might come in. And if and when he comes, their role in this kingdom work was, hey, we're going to help you on your way. Verse number 10, Timothy enters the story. Timothy, when Timothy comes, Paul says, see, to you, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So here's Timothy, and Paul says, invite him in as he's doing the work of the Lord. Again, we tie this back in at the end of chapter 15. The work of the Lord is not in vain. Timothy's doing this kingdom work as well. And what is the church of Corinth called on to do? Send him back out. They were to be sending workers out. They were to be helping and facilitating kingdom missionaries, if you want to say it like that, along the way. This is very consistent with what we read in the book of Acts, that they were helping to send those missionaries along the way, and they were also sending workers from their own churches out to other ministries for the benefit of the kingdom. Now, by nature, we're always asking the question, whenever we give of ourselves, what's in it for me? Or what's in it for us in this case? We want, we expect tangible value for our investments. However, the value in sending workers out is that the gospel is going out People are being brought into the kingdom, given eternal life, growing as disciples of Jesus, and maybe we never see that tangible investment growth. But we experience God's blessing nonetheless as we are obedient to what He has called us to do as a church. Will we always see these tangible benefits of course, the answer is no. However, think about Mike Rudolph not here, here just not too long ago. And it was so encouraging to hear how God was using our church in support of his ministry. And of course, we sent a couple uh, along with him. But to hear how God was using our little church to teach pastors across the world to equip the global church. It is good and right to send people on to strengthen the global church and to have a mindset that seeks the good of the kingdom above our own good. What's in it for me? No. What's in it for the kingdom? Next week, we will send some from our church to New York City to minister to the Liberian church there with Nate and Carol Watkins. Great opportunity to send people out. But I thought, 
Boy, what if, what if God calls one of them to move there and to serve there? I don't know, Walker. Katie was pretty excited the last time she came. So <laughs> we ought to say, praise God. Let, let's send them with joy if, if God were to do something like that. We talked about partnering with Mike Rudolph. We've already sent two, and Pastor Adam's going again in July. And we say, well, how do we measure the kingdom influence from, from sending him to teach pastors in, in Ghana? Well, maybe we can't, but we know that's what we're called to do. And so we do it with joy, knowing that that God's kingdom is bigger than our own. And God knows the needs of his kingdom. He knows the needs of the people around the world. He's raising people up to send them out. And I'm thankful for people willing to go long-term and short-term to to places that maybe uh, you, you and I would think, I don't really want to go there, but there's people that are willing to go to further the spread of the gospel so the kingdom will grow. We can't have a mindset that simply says, what's in it for us? We need to have a mindset that says, how can we send people out for the growth of the kingdom? Kids, you need to be asking yourself, does God want me to go out? Does he want to send me out? And on the flip end of that, parents, we can become very selfish with our kids. Don't direct your kids to follow your dreams for them. Direct them to follow God's leading in their life. Raise raise your kids up that they would be sent out as ambassadors for Christ. This type of mindset needs to be so ingrained in our thinking that whether we're prospering as a church, whether we're struggling as a church, we're finding ways to send people to do the work of the Lord across the kingdom because this work is not in vain. Sending workers. So we're giving financially, we're sending workers. Number three, Trusting the king. We're going to overlap here a little bit from verses 7 to 14. But Paul has just written to them about a whole host of issues and problems that they have. And and if I'm in that church, I know I'm asking myself, well, where do we even start with some of these problems? How, How do we start fixing them? We need help. You want us to just look outward, but but we need some help. Except, what do we read? Paul's not coming anytime soon. Timothy is coming, but Paul says, just keep sending him on his way. He's needed for other kingdom work. And then you think, well, maybe, maybe Apollos can come. He, he can come and help us. Apollos, if you remember, came up in chapter 1. He comes up in chapter 3. There were some within the Corinthian church that they had, a, they, they had an appreciation for Apollos to, to the point where Paul says, some of you say, I am of Paul, and some of you say, I am of Apollos. Like he, he, he's got a following. People like his podcast. They like hearing him preach. So, verse number 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So it seems like Paul was thinking along the lines of, hey, it would be good if Apollos could come, 
But the Lord has other plans. And it wasn't God's will for Paulus to come right then. You know what, as I think about that, oftentimes when we, when we look outside at other ministries, at other churches, it's, it's very easy to see the areas that we're lacking in and see the areas where other places are, are strong in. And it's easy to feel like that we're not equipped. Things are happening over there. They seem like they have it all together. Of course, we, all, we, we know those things aren't always true. And we want to have, who's going to come and help us? Get our stuff in order. But there's no celebrity pastors on their way to save them. And what we really do find is that the kingdom of God is bigger than any one person. Jesus is the king of his kingdom and he provides for his people. Paul has been telling them to look outward, to have a kingdom focus, yet there's still this unanswered question in, in their minds, well, what about us? What about our problems? And what does Paul do? I want you to continue to look outward, not necessarily to others here, but I want you to look to the king of the kingdom. I want you to rest in him In verse 13, Paul calls them to some action, I would say. And behind these actions, though, there is a trust that the king has given them everything that they need. This is the corporate body really living in agape love. You know what agape love? You've probably heard that term before. We talked about it all through chapter 13 and some other places. It's, it's loving in the sense of giving of yourself without expecting anything in return. And isn't that exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do? I want you to give to the kingdom without expecting anything from return. And at the same time, because you know that the king has equipped you with everything that you need. You don't need Paul. You don't need Timothy. You don't need Apollos. He's gifted you, just like chapter 12 says, each person, each member has been gifted and given for the health and the good of the body. But he gives a few calls to action. First of all, he says, I want you to be watchful. I want you to be alert. I want you to stay awake. Be attentive to your spiritual lives. Be attentive to the spiritual lives of those around you, watching over your brothers and sisters. If someone's starting to doze off spiritually, wake them up. Each member of the body is needed, so be alert for spiritual attacks, for false teachings, for disunity that is creeping in. Be watchful. And as you're being watchful, he then says, stand firm in the faith. Here I think we have a perfect statement to lead us into our key truth of the series. We're going to say this together, but we, we probably know it. We must cling to what truly matters. Can we say that together? We must cling to what truly matters. Stand firm in the faith. You're, you plant your feet firmly in the truths of the gospel that is a holy creator demonstrated grace and mercy to undeserving sinners and through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
He is calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his kingdom, which at this time is spiritual and dispersed throughout the world. But one day, all those who are kingdom citizens that are believers in Jesus Christ will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and the immortal kingdom of God will forever be realized on a new earth. This is the faith that we're called to. This is what truly matters. And as we wait for that day, we stand firmly in gospel faith, looking, keeping uh, our eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12, knowing that our King has not forgotten us. But all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, He will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you. He will sustain you. And so stay firmly rooted in the faith of the gospel. And then he says, number three, act like men. Be strong. I'll link link those two together for our purposes this morning. But the word Paul uses here for act like men means to act bravely, bravely to exhibit courage. So Paul isn't using this as a a sexist slight against women. Just in general, men men are, are stronger than women physically and in the face of danger often exhibit courage and bravery. That's that's the, the whole idea behind this. And this is not to say that women don't have courage. I mean, Paul's writing this letter. Who's in the audience? Both men and women. So he's calling men and women. to to act like men, to be courageous, to be brave, to have vigorous strength. And all of this strength and courage that is needed to to, to have power is all from the Lord. It is His power. It's His strength. 1 Corinthians 4.20. Again, same letter. just, Just a reminder of what he said before. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's God's power at work in them, keeping them alert, keeping them grounded in the faith, giving them strength and courage to trust the King. He's given you everything that you need. Yet, we ask, why is it so hard to trust God when problems come up in our life, when problems come up in our church? Why is it so hard to trust Him? And and instead of trusting Him, we oftentimes compound the problem by turning to ourselves, turning to our own wisdom, our own logic, our own feelings, our own interpretation of a verse, our own will and preferences. Do we doubt whether the king really cares about his citizens in this little corner of the kingdom? Instead, we we do run to the celebrity pastors for their advice. And look, I'm not not against seeking advice. In fact, we're we're called to seek advice. In the multitudes of counselors, there is wisdom. However, we can do what the Corinthians did and find our people, the people in our corner on a particular issue. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. That that just, all we're doing is we're trying to bolster our position so we can kind of puff out our chest and say, see, I'm on the right side of this. Or worse worse than that, turning to 
Christians for that sort of purpose is when we turn to the advice of the world and, and soon our trust is in technology and methods and business models and feel-good advice or even unbiblical teaching. Do you find it hard to believe like there's a church that is so messed up on the, the doctrine of the resurrection? Where did that come from? May we be a church that is alert to destructive and divisive mindsets and teachings. May we be a church that has the courage and the strength to address sin, to speak truth, and to trust that the King has given this local body everything needed to grow in godliness along the way. We need to keep moving here. And so a love for the kingdom is giving financially, it's sending workers, it's trusting the king. Number four, and lastly, it is embracing partnerships. Verses 15 to 20. We talked about sending workers. Let's talk about embracing the gospel partnerships around us. So Paul here in his final words to the Corinthians reminds them, you are not alone. We read these names. Sorry, John, I gave you all these hard names to read. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Aquila, Prisca, and those within their house, Paul says. And then he says, all the brothers. You read all these names and usually we think, well, I don't even know how to pronounce it, so what does it matter? But these names all have a story behind them. There's some reason that Paul is bringing them into this letter to greet the Corinthians. In verse 15, he says, you know. Like, you know these people. These were relationships that had been built over weeks or months or years or one-time journeys. I don't know what the case is. These are maybe relationships that grew through times of ministry partnership, that grew through trials and struggles. And as we said before, the Corinthian believers needed a change of focus. It's not just you and your church. It's all these churches together, just like individual Christians aren't called to live the Christian life by themselves. Churches are not called to live church ministry life apart from one another. Verse 18, Paul says, Give recognition to such people. I want you to recognize these people. Now, the word recognition means to acknowledge them, okay? But it also has the idea to, to learn new information about. So Paul, Paul says, I, I want you to acknowledge them as valuable. They're valuable partners, but I want you to also grow in partnership with them. Embrace them as kingdom partners. Keep working with them. There's a kingdom army all fighting on the same side. And you'll notice Paul's encouragement in verses 19 and 20. Churches of Asia send, send greetings. Aquila Prisca with their church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Corinthians, listen, there are people that care about you. There are others who are invested and interested in you. Rejoice that you're not alone. Rejoice in God's good design for the global church. 
Now maybe, maybe it comes into your mind, well, you know, I, I don't want other churches to fail. Certainly that's not the case. But shouldn't we really just be concerned about how our, our church is growing? I mean, isn't that just, you know, we should just be care. Don't wish evil on others, but let's just be concerned about, about our church. And I can, I can relate to this because I think it's our default. Self is always the default. We're always going to look in. And so we count numbers, we see seats filled, and we think that's all good things. But maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Could it be that we need to be just as concerned for the gospel-preaching church down the road and their growth as we are for our growth? Growing up, our family was, was part of a church for a couple years. In my teen years, and even as a teenager, I, I, I would notice, you know, boy, there's a lot more people here today or in the last couple months, uh, and... and um, there's not, it doesn't look as, I'd see the ebb and flow of attendance. And I began to notice that those who would oftentimes come in, well, didn't they just, weren't they from that church there? Weren't they going there? Weren't they coming? And there was three other churches that you started to notice people would, would come. Very doctrinally similar churches in the area. And what I observed, and even talking with my dad, like, how come it seems like some of those things are happening? These four churches had really effectively created a circuit for disgruntled church members. And they would go to this one, and then they would get disgruntled there, and they would go to that one, and then they would go to that one, and just kind of moved around from one church to the next. And I thought back on that and thought, what would it have looked like if those churches truly saw themselves as partners. If the leaders worked together to create healthy partnerships that weren't just simply looking to, to grow their church numbers at the expense of others, because being a pastor now for, for several years, you know what's on the other end of that when, when a bunch of people leave. Maybe I've simplified this situation. But I bring it up to say that, that we should be just as excited to see a partner church grow as if our own church was growing. That, that's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to believe. As pastors, though, we should be just as excited about the prospective member who would join another gospel-preaching church in another town close by or down the road and who is growing spiritually in that place as if they were to stay and grow spiritually at, at our church. Because God is building His kingdom, whether He's building it here or He's building it there. And that's exciting stuff. Now we are, as a church, an independent church, meaning we aren't part of a denomination. We self-govern under the headship of Jesus. Denominations can certainly have their drawbacks and issues, but I think one thing that they do that is helpful, it does provide some kind of idea that we are part of something much larger, that we're on the same team. And I know we've, we've discussed through the years, what would it look like for our church to, to not necessarily join a denomination, but maybe a network of churches that are like-minded, that we could 
partner with for the benefit of the larger kingdom, that we could be more effective in our ministry, that we could have mutual support, and maybe it's something for us to, to pray about. Because unfortunately, the American individualistic mindset has crept into the American church through the years. And what matters most is our success and our growth. Again, we need to care about our growth. I'm not saying that. We don't want to get complacent. But we can't view other gospel-preaching churches as competition. We, we succeed at, at their expense. We must view them as partners in the kingdom. We're on the same side. We're fighting the same battles. We're proclaiming the same message. We're literally serving the same king. Do we have a mindset that embraces gospel partnerships? That rejoices when other churches are flourishing, when other Christians are growing, even if it's not at our church? Do we love the kingdom more than we love our church? We need to begin to wrap up here. But you think, what an odd way, but yet what an encouraging and fitting way to end this book. Church life is tough. It's a bunch of sinful, selfish people saved by the grace of God from their sin through the work of Jesus Christ. That, that's what we are here this morning. And the fleshly battle still rages within each of us a desire to boast in our giftedness, a desire to live whatever way we want without any interest in, in correction, instruction from others, a desire to fit into the culture, to create our own standards of spirituality, set rules that make us look good even if they're an unbiblical burden to others. A desire to make sure all the church decisions happen the way that, that we like them to. See, the Corinthian church isn't a one in a million church. Its struggles are present in many churches, including ours. And we would be wise to heed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Remember, talked about this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this a corporate verse. Because Paul says, let anyone, but let, let's put, let any church who thinks it stands, take heed lest it fall. If our only thought is, boy, those messed up churches out there, I think we're missing the heart of what we need to be considering in this letter. Therefore, let any church who thinks that it stands take heed lest it fall. This is why Paul gives multiple heart checks along the way. I mean, how many sermons have we talked about? building? Are you building each other up? Are you showing love? We, we didn't look at it uh, because it's sort of been woven in through these, these sermons, but verse number 14, let all that you do be done in love. How many times have we heard this? Because Paul is giving us repeated heart checks all along the way. 
until he comes to the very end. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And our love for the Lord is seen in our love for the kingdom. Look, the mission that we're called to doesn't stop because of our struggles. If we just put a pause every time we were going through difficult things, I mean, would the mission ever get done in any church? No church would ever be on mission if that were the case. And so what Paul does with the Corinthians is what we need to be reminded of as well. That even in our struggles, we must put our focus and our energy into others. We must be looking outward and we will then begin to grow. Yes, we have issues that we need to take care of. I mean, they got to deal with some big, big, big deal issues in their corporate body. But God works as we begin to look to others and we begin to then flourish based on not a focus on self, but a focus on others. And so what needed to be changed in Corinth, all that energy that went into self needed to go into others. And the only way that this would happen in a, any kind of sustainable way, because this wasn't just like, all right, we've got we to gotta really love other people. We've got to try to do these things. No, if, if they had a love, heart love for the Lord, truly it would come out in the love that they would have for the kingdom. You know, in this letter, Paul hasn't led them to some new theology, theological discovery. He's led them to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? Remember his response? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Same thing Paul's saying. Paul has also led them to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus answers a question about eternal life, where someone says, hey, do you have, uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Here's what Jesus says, Luke chapter 10. Go back one side. There you go. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And he said to him, oh, sorry, go to the next slide. Okay, we missed some verses. Back up to, to Luke. Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. The man answered based on Jesus asking him, what is written in the law? The man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love God, love others. That's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do because it's on this gospel truth that our salvation is built, that our church is being built. And so brothers and sisters, let me remind you one final time here as we wrap up this book, the church isn't designed to meet your every desire, to stroke your ego, to make a name for yourself. It's designed to reflect a love for the king and his kingdom 
for God and others. If anyone has no love, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come.